Thank you all for coming out this evening um, for this program, which is not the first thing that most of us think of about uh, just a casual evening conversation. But obviously the fact that you're here tonight indicates that you agree that it is an important topic. Uh, And a lot of other people are agreeing about that too. If you've been watching public TV, listening to public radio on WFAE, reading various publications and so forth, you're seeing titles uh, like Being Mortal. Uh, You've seen that one. Uh, Seeking a Beautiful Death is another title. Dying Shouldn't Be So Brutal. Why Is It So Hard for Doctors to Talk to Patients About Death? And so on it goes. So it does seem like we are hearing and talking more about this topic than perhaps at any time in, uh, in the past. Well, for our conversation here this evening, we're joined by a very distinguished and capable panel. I'm going to give you a fuller introduction uh, for each of our panelists as we go along. But just so you know uh, who the folks are that I'm surrounded by this evening, and you'll see them in your print, printed program as well. Starting on my, uh, my far left is Reverend Michael Flynn uh, with Novant and um, Dr. John Barkley with Carolina's Healthcare System, and Jillian Tullis, a professor with uh, UNC Charlotte, and Lance Stell, Dr. Stell with Davidson College and Carolina's Medical Center as well. So an initial welcome to them, if you would, this evening. As we kick things off uh, on this topic that is sometimes challenging uh, for us to address, I'd like to hear just briefly from two or three of you. And throughout the evening, we'll have WFAE staffers, Michael and Alexia, with uh, roving microphones. I'd like to hear from two or three of you as we get going with a very simple question. Why did you come tonight? Brief response Whatever comes to your mind, what brought you here tonight? So we'll start right here. Well, I've had to do some uh, end-of-life planning for my twin sister. She died last year, but we had conversation over a number of years before she died about what, what she wanted to be done for her and things like that. So that I was just curious tonight to see how other people were going to be dealing with that. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Okay, another What brings you? Thank you. I'm a doctoral candidate at UNCC, and um, my doctoral dissertation focuses on um, just care and how we can educate individuals um, to make good end-of-life choices. Okay. All right. Thanks. Uh, One more? Yes. yes, I'm here for kind of uh, after the afterlife portion, which uh, I'm a real estate broker. And sometimes in my profession, I have to deal with people who are looking to liquidate their assets. And the getting one's affairs in order is something that I think is uh, beneficial to know in advance before it gets to this point. So that's why I'm here. All right. Thank you very much. Interesting. Uh, three categories of reasons, I would say. Um, and I'm sure there are others. And we want to hear from Uh, many of you tonight as we go through with this discussion. So there will come a time uh, quite shortly when our roving microphones will be available to you again for your questions and comments uh, to the room 
or to our expert panelists tonight. Um, just on the, the topic of talking about this subject, the Pew Research Center did a study uh, that was released in November of 2013 on end-of-life decisions, and they found that uh, about 4 in 10 adults in this country say that they have given a great deal of thought to their wishes for medical treatment at the end of their lives, 4 in 10. Another 35% have given some thought, but one quarter of adults said they have given little or no thought to end-of-life medical treatment. And according to the Pew Center, only about one-third of adults have put wishes in this regard in writing, which is something that we'll spend some significant time talking about tonight. So one of the major premises, really, of, of WFAE's public conversation this evening is the evident fact that Many of us simply, we don't want to have this conversation. We don't want to talk about death and dying. Or perhaps as well, we don't know how to have those conversations. It could be both. You could look at this forum as a conversation starter. And we'll be approaching our topic tonight in three broad categories. Number one, how to talk about end-of-life concerns. Secondly, how to plan and choose your end-of-life care. And also, uh, thirdly, but it may work its way in even sooner than we think, the clinical and ethical dilemmas that may arise and do arise surrounding end-of-life decisions and care. So these branches of our conversation will uh, intersect frequently, I'm sure, and we'll find some other strands of the conversation, too, because as we heard just in the little sampling of uh, reasons that you came out tonight, Everyone has a concern, everyone has a story and an experience in this regard. Uh, this evening, as we proceed, uh, you see our hashtags there uh, at WFAE PubCon and also at End of Life, and then the at WFAE uh, as well. So if you are geared up for that, um, I think the wireless situation here in the auditorium is uh, not, so, uh, not so hot, but uh, <laughs> if you've got some other options, uh, feel free to use them. And we do have a staffer, Sarah, over there hiding in the corner who's going to be uh, helping to put some highlights of this conversation out through social media tonight. So, uh, segment one, strand number one of our conversation, having the conversation. How do we talk about end-of-life Concerns. I'd like to turn first to Jillian Tullis. This is where the more detailed introduction comes. Uh, she is an assistant professor of communication studies at UNC Charlotte. She teaches classes in health communication and spirituality. Her research interests include ways that hospice teams communicate with patients and their families and how chaplains assess spiritual pain. Dr. Tullis is a local hospice volunteer as well. She's a member of the Mecklenburg County End-of-Life Care Coalition. So welcome again. And it seems, uh, Dr. Tullis, that you personally spend uh, a remarkably uh, lot of time <laughs> thinking and talking about death and dying. So why do most of us have such a tough time doing the same thing? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. 
Um, I do spend a lot of time talking about this topic and thinking about it, probably more than the average person, to say the least. Uh, but I think the real answer to your question is that uh, there's a lot of fear. There's a fear of unknown. There's a fear of offending somebody. There's a fear of uh, bringing up feelings, our own emotions, the emotions of other people that we might be um, concerned about or concerned for. And so I think that, that that's probably the first barrier that most of us experience. Okay. The fear factor. The fear factor, for mm-hmm. sure. For sure. Um, we may talk about this more uh, a little later on, but you've been involved with something here in the community called the Death Cafe. Yes. How many of you have heard of the Death Cafe? Wow, okay. Um, for the rest, uh, we're curious. So Death Cafe uh, started outside of the United States, and the, the impetus for it was to emulate the kind of cafe experience of sitting around a table in a casual environment, having tea or coffee, and having maybe cake and cookies, and really just talking about death. There's no ideological um, interest there, so it's not, there's no agenda. It's whatever conversations, topics, the participants actually want to bring um, to the group. And um, I did it, uh, the first particular death cafe that we did, I did it with a gerontologist by the name of Lindahl Hare, and she and I were really overwhelmed by the response. We thought, well, you know, 20 people, 30 people maybe, if we're lucky, and we had a standing room only, 50, 60 uh, people. Some people sat on the floor. They were determined to stay, and they were, they were not going to leave. And we had really great conversations about all kinds of topics, from what somebody wanted um, for their own end of life, what they wanted after they died, did they want to be buried, cremated. And then other people talked about some of their grief experiences when a loved one had, had died, and it was a very supportive environment. And in fact, People left uh, saying that they felt lighter and affirmed, and it was um, it was certainly it was it was great. We just we were so thankful that we had people coming out. Do you find that when when a person somehow some way, whether it's through an event like this or just in their own home or with uh, a physician or whatever the case may be, or a clergy member perhaps, first has that first significant conversation on this topic, is that like a, a barrier that's broken through and, and the further conversations come more easily or, or not? I, could, I will certainly say from my experience, it's much easier to have conversations now that I've spent so many um, years really studying the topic um, than it did with my own first experience with the death of a loved one. So it does get easier. You learn from your mistakes um, you, you find, I find that I'm, I'm a little bit more willing to be bold about the topic personally. And I think people also, because I'm open, are willing to come and talk to me about the topic. I joke that, you know, my friends often send me articles or think of, they think of me when they think of death. So, uh, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> but it does, it does get easier. I think sometimes, I think also, um, it's always better to do, have the conversation early. I think the mistake is to wait until there's a crisis or a tragedy to have the conversation. It's much easier to talk about dying and death over a drink or at the holidays or with some cake and coffee um, than it is to wait until there's, a, there's an emergency that requires it. You, you know, I think start the conversation now. And I know from some earlier conversations that I've had with each of our other panelists that uh, you all agree with that last statement, and we'll hear about more of your perspectives on that. Uh, Speaking of clergy, I'd like to uh, bring in Reverend Michael Flynn. 
down here on my far left. Uh, he's a board-certified chaplain with Novant Health Hospice and Supportive Care Services. Uh, Reverend Flynn has over 30 years of pastoral ministry experience and was a member of the Jesuit religious order for 17 years. Uh, Today, he regularly visits with patients and families in their homes, in the hospital, and in other facilities uh, to have these very discussions on end-of-life matters. So, Reverend Flynn, thank you for uh, being here with us. Why, from your perspective, is it important for uh, people to have these discussions with their family members and their health care providers, too? Well, I think it's important uh, to, uh, as Jillian just said, to try to have them earlier rather than later um, because the more you wait until you get into emergency uh, situations, the harder it is for families uh, to, to sit down and calmly talk about what they truly want. Um, I think it's important to have these conversations because at some point in all of our lives, in each of our lives, we're going to be confronted by, by illness and, and mortality uh, of our, ourselves and of our loved ones. It's important for us to talk together about what's important to us when we get to that point, what sort of choices we would want to make about care and treatment and what would be the most important things for us and for our families to be spending our whatever time we have. Have you observed anything uh, in addition uh, to what uh, Jillian said in terms of the, the sources of that fear or that reluctance to go ahead and have the conversation? Well, I, I think um, th- there is uh, in, in all of us uh, a fear about death and and. And the temptation to put off talking about it till another day. But I think uh, one of the, the things that, that crossed my mind as Jillian was speaking is that the, the closer you get to actual illnesses and, and medical emergencies, there's a, a factor, I think, uh, that, that begins to make it harder and harder for people to have these discussions. And that is... Uh, uh, psychology uh, in the group, the family, uh, the the uh, the, uh, the pair, that uh, neither one or no one wants to discourage anyone else. Uh, no one wants to be the one to say maybe we should think about comfort care rather than than uh, aggressive treatment, because it feels like giving up. It, it, it feels uh, to people too often that uh, if, if I say such a thing, if, if I bring up this topic, it's going to be discouraging to my loved one. It's, it's going to tell them that we think that they ought to give up rather than keep fighting. And so uh, I, I think there's a moment in, well, more than one moment, but, but there's an important shift that, that is necessary and hard to make as illnesses progress and as people come to the end of life of of shifting from that focus on uh, aggressive treatments, of, of trying to cure a disease or, or put it into remission, uh, a, a shift to accepting the fact that, that death is eventually inevitable for everybody, and it seems to be that we're approaching such a moment with this loved one of ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's a hard shift for people to make. Mm-hmm. 
Is that part of your role to help them make that shift? I, I think that it is, and it's also a reason why I'm sometimes invited not to come in the door. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I think um, when, when people uh, sign up for, uh, for hospice care, uh, they have not only a nurse and perhaps nurses' aides who are coming around to, to help with the medical side of things, but there's also a social worker involved in our care team. Uh, there's a chaplain involved. And uh, it's the social worker and the chaplain uh, that end up bringing in things like advanced care directives, conversations, uh, and uh, the question of funeral arrangements and preferences and things. These are the sorts of topics that, uh, that really bring home to people um, that, yes, we really are at a point where we need to be thinking about uh, not just prolonging life, but, but how to accept uh, the death of a loved one and, and, uh, and survive it well together. Mm-hmm. So uh, Reverend Flynn just used a term, uh, and I know that many of you, a number of you are uh, pretty well acquainted uh, with this field and the terminology, but I'm just curious, uh, how many are familiar with that simple term, advanced directive? Okay. Uh, I'll be honest, until a, a few years ago, I wasn't. Uh, so we're going to talk a lot more about, uh, about those documents and uh, what they entail. In fact, we're going to get into that quite shortly. Um, because, you know, talking about being able and willing to talk about death and dying, whether it's one's own uh, perspective or that of, of a loved one or someone that, that, that you're close to, Talking about it is one thing. Actually planning, doing further planning for it is, is another thing. Uh, and so we're going to talk about some of that planning. Um, as we get ready to transist to, to that part of the discussion, Dr. Tolis, I'm just wondering from uh, your research, uh, are, are you, can you shed light for us on whether some cultures, some countries, people groups, do better with this, having this conversation, than we've done as a, as a society so far? I'm not sure if there are particular cultural groups or even countries that are better about the conversation, but I do think that there are some cultures that are more accepting of death and as a natural part of life. We have a lot of technology in this country. We have a lot of access to pain drugs, um, palliation, that I think a lot of other places um, don't have. So just as an example, I, was, I traveled to Istanbul for a conference a couple of years ago, and a lot of countries from the Middle East were represented at this conference. And I learned during the course of hearing from physicians who cared for cancer patients that they, just, they didn't even have access to things like morphine. Um, they didn't have access to early diagnostic tools. So when people came to them, they were already at the stage of, at the end of their lives. So you can imagine how different the conversation is. I think um, Mike mentioned the idea that we're trying, we feel like we're giving up. We have this whole language in our culture around focusing on fighting, right? And I think the language, if you look at that particular type of discourse, suggests that there's just a different orientation. So I think in some ways we have something to learn from those other countries, for sure, that just see death as something that happens and that will happen. So that I, I think, it, without going, without like kind of pinpointing a country, I think um, there's certainly some evidence for that. Okay. 
before we start talking about some more nitty-gritty and, and these documents and how do they work, out of the conversation we've had for the last 15 minutes uh, about how to have this conversation, I'm just wondering, are there those of you who have found some ways, some successful ways to have these conversations? I'd love to hear from a couple of you. How did you get the conversation started in your family or in your circles? Okay, right here, sir. Um, I was very lucky, or I'm very lucky to have a friend that uh, worked at a funeral home. And so I asked her if she would allow me to walk up to the front door as though I were the person in need right then and there for a family member and take me A to Z what happens. And it took away all of the mystique. And I saw a dead body. I saw what came out, uh, the cremains. Um, I learned about how they upsell and how you could have a little... <laughs> it, was, it was so amazing. And I, would, I don't know if there's any programs or if, if the funeral homes, there may be someone in here that is um, in that industry, but if, if they're not doing that, I think it would be a, a great marketing plan for them to get people in there, take the mystique out, and, and get people involved early. Interesting. Okay, thank you. Uh, someone else on just... You know, ideas for starting the conversation, getting over the hump. My name, my name is Dan Kerrigan, and I'm president of the Compassion and Choices chapter here in the Charlotte region. And in terms of the conversation, we sponsor a program on life stage planning. It's all about putting together the documents. It's a five-hour program in February and March. We have 14 different events in the Charlotte area on that, and we have just written a new book called End of Life Planning in North Carolina. Um, so I think if you, it's surprising the number of people who have that interest, express that interest, come to a five-hour, three-week program. So I think when you learn more about it, have that conversation in a small group, our groups are 15 to 20 max, that that helps you get through this barrier. Okay. Okay, thanks. Um, yes, ma'am, right here, Alexia. <clears throat> um, I actually teach a course on death and dying at UNC Charlotte. It's an undergraduate course. And one of the resources that I use in that class and that I'd like to share with everybody in this room is called the Conversation Project. It's uh, conversationproject.org. And when you go to that website, you can download a packet that allows you to work through this. As Dr. Tulla said, so many people, it's about the fear, but not just our own fear. Um, you know, majority of my students, undergraduates, are 18 to 25 years old. This is the farthest thing from their mind. But even when they work through this and they're ready to have the conversation, to have a conversation with the parent, which I know most parents in this room, if your child came to you at that age and wanted to have that conversation, Parents aren't ready to have that conversation either. So what this packet does is it allows you to think about your own wishes and your own desires. There's Likert scales and worksheets. And then in the end, um, it will talk about how do you talk to your family, maybe when's the best time or what's the best approach. And I think it's a really good resource for everybody to know about. Okay, thank you. Michael's got one, one more here. Hi, my name is Lenore Vassell, and I'm, a, I'm the founder of a technology startup here in Charlotte called The Torch, and it's all about passing the torch. 
And what we do is make it easier to give instructions on how to navigate your life in an emergency. And death is an emergency. But there's also incapacitation, which you talk about the um, proxies and those types of things. And um, what we've been doing is encouraging people to start the conversation, especially with your parents. It's always hard to say, hey, mom and dad, you know, I need you to fill out this information because I need, you know, to know this stuff. And your parents get all, you know, uh, defensive. Why do you want to know? You know, because that's what people are afraid of with these conversations. But we find that if you lead by example and you do it yourself and then you share it with your family, your brother, your sister, your parents, and you say, hey, you know, I did this. I think this is really important. Then they'll do the same and say, wow, you're really, you know, organized. I should probably do that. And it starts this kind of, we call it sparking the conversation. In a family, if one person starts it, then it, it ripples out through the group. And we, we're doing it through technology where you're starting a conversation in an app where you pass the torch. And I don't know if you've heard today, but Facebook put a, a new feature in Facebook where you can assign somebody to manage your account if you yes. die. Uh-huh. And so and Google was the first to do it. Now Facebook is the second to do it. And um, the software companies are becoming very responsible in, in putting in features so that people can be responsible. Okay. Yes. Thank you for mentioning that. I did hear that story on WFAE this afternoon. <laughs> very, very interesting. You know, what I, um, one thing I take out of, of those responses is that there are multiple avenues and organizations um, that you can connect with if you're not sure how to take that first step. So let me just throw this out here, and at the end of the program, this will be on the screen. But uh, the email address, publicconversations at wfae.org. Publicconversations at wfae.org. If those of you who are involved with these organizations and, and groups and initiatives would like to have uh, that information um, we, we've got a section where we've been linking different things on this topic. Um, if you'd like us to consider your entry for that, just email that uh, to publicconversations at wfae.org, and we'll try to collate some of these resources uh, that can be a community resource on how to start the conversation. So thank you for those. Um, I do want to move on then to, uh, to talk more about these advanced directive documents. Um, again, terms, some of you are very familiar with these terms, some uh, not as much. Uh, we've been hearing about living wills for uh, some decades now, I guess. Uh, the healthcare power of attorney, maybe some aren't quite as familiar with that term. Uh, you watch TV, I guess you're familiar with the, the DNR terminology, right? Uh, how about the most form? How many have any idea what the most form is? Okay, uh, we'll have experts here to explain in a few minutes. So let me introduce um, to our other two panelists who are with us this evening. Uh, to my left is Dr. John Barkley, Chief Medical Officer for Post-Acute Care Services with Carolina's Healthcare System. Dr. Barkley previously served as Chief Medical Officer for Hospice and Palliative Care in the Charlotte region. He spent five years as a practicing pulmonary and critical care physician, is a member of a national consensus panel that has published numerous reports on best practices in hospital-based palliative care. 
welcome once again Dr. Barkley. And uh, Dr. Lance Stell is director of the Medical Humanities Program at Davidson College, where his teaching includes courses in ethics and medical ethics. Dr. Stell is also medical ethicist in the Department of Internal Medicine at Carolina's Medical Center. He previously served on the board of the Bioethics Resource Group, which was a community-based resource and education group that included physicians, lawyers, clergy, and others. So welcome in to the conversation. Thank you for your patience here as we get to this point in the conversation. I want to go to our sound booth for just a moment. We have a very short sound bite, if you will, uh, that was aired earlier this week as part of a story uh, that Michael Tomzik did on WFAE that was referred to in uh, our welcome tonight. Um, Michael took a look at advanced directives and having the conversation, and he spoke with uh, attorney Natalie Miller of Mooresville, who spends much of her time helping people fill out these documents. wanted to share with you a few moments of what she told Michael. The attorney, Natalie Miller, has this conversation all the time. It's her job, and yet it's hard for her family, too. My husband actually hasn't done one of these, I don't think, um, because it's hard for him to talk about. And she's made clear that it's important to her. It comes up. I've learned as a spouse that nagging probably is not good for my marriage. (laughs) But yes, we do discuss it. About once a year, I bring it up. So there you go. (laughs) So uh, if... If you find it hard to start the conversation, I guess don't feel bad, right? Um, But I want to bring in um, Dr. Barkley, Dr. Stell to the conversation. Uh, This whole area of these documents, it can be confusing. There are multiple documents, probably even more than I've referred to here. Um, We were uh, distributing, making available some copies of those for folks coming in. There are multiple pages. There are multiple boxes to check and initial Um, one can easily see how it's a little bit intimidating. Um, I don't know where to start on advanced directives. Where where would you start that discussion? Uh, Well, I'm glad that uh, Lance is with me. He and I have done this, uh, had this type of discussion several times uh, in the past, and um, it is complicated. Um, they, they can be multiple-page documents, and they're, uh, as the sound clip uh, uh, suggested, people can think that attorneys have to be involved when, in fact, they, they don't uh, have to be involved. Uh, living wills, um, as many in the audience may know, uh, represent a, a document whereby an individual essentially states what they would or wouldn't want in the event they were no longer able to to speak for uh, themselves. Unfortunately, it represents a very limited uh, number of um, uh, things they would or wouldn't want or uh, scenarios, uh, namely uh, terminal illness uh, and two or more doctors uh, certifying that, if you will, or being in a persistent vegetative state and most People, including doctors, don't know what a persistent vegetative state uh, is. I, I know there's at least one more doctor in the audience, but uh, uh, no dig on doctors uh, with that one. But it just is. I think Dr. Stell would, would uh, vouch for me on that. Um, 
the the issue about the living will itself is is that when uh, patients get close to death, um, and I'm sure Michael has seen this many times, they very rarely fall into the scenario where those check boxes in fact uh, apply. Uh, so I'm a much bigger fan of uh, so-called healthcare power of attorney, which is not a legal power of attorney, but uh, in fact appoints one to uh, be the voice of that person who can no longer represent themselves. Uh, the critical thing there uh, is uh, that the person you choose will honor your wishes so that you don't choose someone who says, oh, well, that's good, uh, uh, John can't talk anymore, so this is what I want you to do. Uh, uh, that's not what a health care power of attorney is supposed to do. And um, there is some laughter here, but as a practicing or, or um, uh, formerly practicing physician, we do see this type of situation uh, quite regularly. And I will tell you that in most health care power of attorney uh, documents, it in fact says that the uh, HCPOA may not override my living will. There's, in fact, a positive language, if you will, to that, uh, to that effect. And I think this is all about um, uh, patients continuing to have the right of what we uh, refer to as uh, the right of informed refusal. Many have heard uh, the term informed consent. The flip side of that, which in medicine is, is equally, if not more important, and Lance is the bioethicist here and can speak to this more elo eloquently than I, but uh, it is essential that the individual have their say even if they can't uh, have, literally have their say so that their, their right of informed refusal is absolutely protected. And a living will, not so much, but health care power of attorney definitely should should be able to uh, protect that right. Um, I'm going to speak to the DNR order, and then, Lance, I'll pass most to you, uh, given your background with the, uh, the, the uh, most form and, and uh, the most order. Uh, DNR stands for do not resuscitate, and I think that's a misnomer. Um, I suspect the panel here agrees with that, that that really should uh, read DNAR, do not attempt resuscitation. Um, and what this refers to, if we all watch TV probably, and someone has their heart stops or their breathing stops, and then in comes the carts and the bells and the whistles and the sirens, and people's chests get uh, pumped and compressed and breathing tubes get put down, um, uh, but you don't see all the real uh, gore and trauma that goes along with it. And on TV, it's amazing how successful it is. Um, <laughs> there have been studies that have looked at this. In fact, there was a pretty famous study in the New England Journal of Medicine that somewhere around 70% of, 75% of the time um, uh, that um, patients had a cardiopulmonary arrest they were, in fact, successfully resuscitated, and some 60-plus percent literally walked out of the hospital. And I may be off plus or minus 5 percent, but in real life, if you have a cardiopulmonary arrest in the hospital, the, if it's outside the operating room, where it usually is, um, the likelihood of being resuscitated is somewhere on the order of uh, 10 to 15 percent, and depending on your diagnosis, the likelihood of walking out of the hospital 
um, is less than 5%. So it, it, the DNR order really is for people who are a, approaching uh, the end of life, though it need not be so. You could be almost 51 uh, and say, look, I, if this happens to me, I, if I have a cardiopulmonary arrest, I, I want to be left alone and, and be treated with comfort-directed measures. So um, the other thing I just want to say about uh, DNR, and we hear this in the hospital all the time, and, and Dr. Stell can vouch for this, as can Michael and others in the audience, um, a, a DNR order is not a plan of care. And so one of the, the things that we get confused about as physicians um, and one of the reasons that I think patients and families are reticent to engage in these conversations, uh, when we start talking about DNR, uh, we start talking about these false choices of, well, do you want to live or do you want to die? Well, I haven't met that many people who want to die, um, and I'm really not trying to be funny, um, that really what we want to be talking about is, if and when your heart stops or your breathing stops, would you like us to attempt to resuscitate you? Here's how likely that is to be successful. Alternatively, we could pursue these measures, aggressive care to keep you comfortable, mm-hmm. keep you out of pain, et cetera, and um, really discussing what the goals of the treatment are and, and not present the patients with false choices, which... Um, really understandably then puts them maybe, I think the word defensive was used in a more defensive okay. uh, posture. Okay. All right. Uh, thank you. There's, uh, there's obviously a lot there and, and complexities. Um, before we move on to, to uh, the other form there, the other document on our list, uh, Dr. Stell, uh, give us just a little bit more uh, insight into making a choice between having a living will and or a health care power of attorney? Does the average person need both, one or the other? What do you recommend? Why? Why not? Um, well, a couple things first. Um, and that is one thing is the assumption that these conversations will concern those who are in later stages of life. And that this is something that somehow the younger people can skip over because it's not appropriate to them. So we have to remember that the right-to-die cases, most of you would remember, Karen Ann Quinlan and Nancy Cruzan were young women. And the shock of -of end-of-life considerations come to people in very unexpected ways. Um, They can go from being just fine in the morning to having a vast change that will mean facing imminent mortality for those who make decisions on their behalf. So we think about the rhythms of life and that these decisions come more appropriately to people who are older and more experienced, but in in many cases that's not true. And as a hospital ethicist, my perspective on these things really is where things have gone wrong and gone off the tracks, Uh, where everything goes as the way it should and all the nurses and the doctors are on the same page with the family and whatnot. Those are not the kind of cases that I hear about. The kind of cases I hear about is where the unexpected happens, there's dysfunction in the conversation, and people are trying to find their way seeking clarification of the goals of care. 
So when I go to see somebody at the, at the invitation of whoever it is, sometimes it's a family member, sometimes a nurse, sometimes a doctor, uh, the first thing is to get clear as to why I'm there, and they don't have to talk to me. And sometimes they say, no, they don't want to. <laughs> so I've had that kind of experience too. No, I don't want to talk to you. To get back to the kinds of documents, the living will came to North Carolina in 1976. It's essentially a, direct, a set of written directions to the doctor. It's not involving the family at all. And it addresses circumstances where the physician has determined the person has lost capacity to communicate their choices and engage in intelligent decision-making. And now they've got this written document. And the document is framed in very general kinds of terms, using things like terminally ill, uh, that vegetative state, neurologically devastated. And these things, uh, well, terminally ill is not defined, actually, in North Carolina law. This is just left open, and my medical colleagues will say, well, what does it mean to be terminally ill? What does it mean to have a limited life expectancy? Well, we all have a limited life expectancy. Uh, so some will say, well, that, you know, I'm terminally ill when I'm born. So... Yeah, so there's the, the immediate response, and that is the determinations that are required by the physician are terms that are not, not common. And uh, the reliability of a diagnosis of somebody in a persistent vegetative state is difficult. It's commonly uh, misdiagnosed. Uh, one study showed about 37% of the time physicians got that diagnosis incorrect. So there, there's worries on that side of it namely the medical findings that would have to be made by the doctor involved before they move on to say what the person does or doesn't want with respect to various interventions there might be. And the kinds of scenarios, as Dr. Barkley has pointed out, they they don't fit the kind of circumstances that are envisioned in this document. And you can't talk to the paper, right? The paper is addressing the doctor with these generalized terms and... The doctor is tempted to talk to family members, but really the family members are not invited to do that. So the living will, while it was imagined to be a way to direct care, uh, I have to say in my experience, I've never seen it make things go better, and I've often seen it make things go worse. Because people direct their attention to these terms and what they think they mean and how they would be interpreted by the person who wrote the the document, and a lot of desultory conversations result, struggling with the living well. It was an early attempt to try to facilitate a better decision-making and to put the patient in the, in the driver's seat, so to speak, but it really didn't do that. So, uh, Yes, uh, I just wanted to interject there. Um, you're not alone in that thinking. Dr. Stell is, is not on an island with... That thinking, uh, there is an article that was published uh, by the Hastings Center Report back in 2004, The Death of the Living Will. Uh, And the authors of this article, uh, Carl Schneider and Angela Fagerlin, make a number of points. Uh, I won't try to to go over most of them, Um, but uh, among them, um, they make the point that Not only do people regularly know too little when they sign a living will, but often, again, we're human, they analyze their choices only superficially before placing them in the time capsule. Uh, They also say how much harder it is 
to conjure up preferences for an unspecified future uh, or unspecifiable future confronted with an unidentifiable malady and unpredictable treatments. Yeah. Your, your thoughts on uh, all of precisely. that. Precisely. <laughs> Meeting adjourned. Precisely. Yeah. So the, the perception was that the living will is a social experiment that's largely failed. So we could ask, you know, well, why do we continue to execute them? And if you go see a lawyer in the estate planning section or a health law section, they'll largely I and mean, very often offer you both. And in conversations I've had with my lawyer friends, I say, well, why do you offer a living will? Why do you do that? Uh, the evidence is that they make no difference uh, in the course of care. They cause a lot of trouble. Uh, they falsely reassure people that things are going to be smoothed over if these documents are possessed. So why do you do it? Well, they just do. Um, <laughs> so what do we have in an alternative? Well, we used to have something called the durable power of attorney, which allows people to specify what's to happen with a whole bunch of different aspects of their life. Uh, in personal affairs is one of the things that allowed people to check. And, those, and personal affairs included the power to hire and fire doctors and provide for the care of the principal in the event that the person lost capacity. Right? And we had that in North Carolina for a long time. But uh, there was a the thought that it says provide for the care of the principal. Does that mean refuse care on behalf of the principal? And so at the North Carolina Medical Society, which I've served on for 15 years, um, there was a question of whether we needed additional documentation to specifically address health care decision-making. And the decision was, yes, we needed that. And so what that allows for you to do is to designate somebody that you trust to speak for you when you can't speak for yourself. And as John says, we still want them to be speaking on our behalf and not winging off into their own orbit deciding what's best. They, we want them to speak for us, to be standing in the shoes of us when we can't talk. All right? And that sounds better. Problem. Here's the problem. Th- I'm a complexifier and I think of problems. <laughs> right. So all of us have the right to change our mind, right? So should the healthcare power of attorney have a right to change a mind about the care? We all change our minds. I mean, when death stares somebody in the face, uh, their solid determination to pursue one course is sometimes quivers, and they're frightened, and so they will reverse course. And there's provision in the law for people to instantly change their mind and cancel the validity of any of these documents. All they have to do is announce that on the spot. So... Thinking of ways that things can go wrong, that's one way that things can go wrong, and that is that the individual who is chosen as the trusted spokesperson for the person now unable uh, will, in fact, follow through on their best understanding of what that person wanted. Dr. Stell, thank you. Uh, I want to come back because I know there's more. (laughs) I know you've got more. Um, But I think it's important, perhaps at this point, I just have... A feeling, or at least a question in my mind, if there are those in the audience tonight who may have a warmer view of the living will, or have had experience uh, to the contrary, or have got uh, a different perspective on that, or additional perspective. So if so, I'd I'd like to hear from you. Um, The living will, your experience with it, or your philosophy about it. 
Do you have one? Why? Why not? Uh, well, I don't have one, and I'm one of those people that should. I'm actually a chaplain at CMC Mercy, and so I help other people do theirs. Um, but the reason, the only, and this honestly is the only reason I think it helps, is that it gives patients the opportunity to say, I don't want anything done. I don't want extraordinary means when it's, when it's time. And it, it gives the family some permission uh, to say, okay, we don't have to keep trying to do something more. Uh, I don't think the document does anything, but I think it, it gives maybe the conversation a chance for family members to say, or for a patient to say, um, I don't want, there's a lot of things I don't want, and it's okay. You can, you can say this is it. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, okay. Yes, right here, sir. I just wanted to uh, throw into the uh, conversation the uh, the thing that was on the news, I think, today about the woman in the Netherlands who had signed directives when she was uh, cognizant, and now that she has uh, dementia, that someone is claiming that, uh, you know, it's a, she's a different person now. By the way, I'm a medical doctor and uh, the Buddhist chaplain for Novant. Yeah, thank you. Yes, um, also on NPR yesterday, there was the story that I think you're referring to um, involving a dementia patient and the, the um, quandary that everyone was in um, trying to even decipher or interpret some of her behavior in terms of whether she was will, willfully uh, accepting food or whether there was just a reflexive action going on when the food was placed uh, near her. Very complex uh, kinds of things, and uh, I'm sure well, discontinuities this happens. between the person previously and the person now. And if the breach is so wide, it would seem wrong to let one person decide for another because we really got a different person now. And uh, so that's basically the argument, the validity of these decisions for somebody that's vastly different later. Dr. Tolis, you're listening intently. Have you got something to contribute? Oh, I mean, I could probably say a lot. But I think, I, I believe in this particular case, if we're going to talk about this particular case, the question of whether or not, I mean, she had made her wishes known. and She said, if I become unable to communicate for myself or incapacitated, this is what I, or if I'm facing the end of my life, this is what I want. That's my understanding of the story. So it seems like it would be consistent with her stated values to, um, but but I believe the, inter- the the fact that she can swallow is being ter- interpreted as as her her ability to her expressing her some type some type of desire and mm-hmm. I I think that's mind boggling to me because we know enough about the way that the body um, I mean the medical yeah. doctor no, here no, could I, speak to it but I think we know more about the medical body that, that I mean the body that it can it does all kinds of miraculous things even when it's when it's shutting reflex. down right it's a swallow reflex. right right and, and, and I think. Um, Jillian is is right, and I'm sure you're aware, sir, uh, given your background, um, that uh, reflexes can can remain intact for many years, and and uh, patients with dementia that advances uh, eventually they will in fact uh, uh, lose that reflex, or it will become impaired, which is one of the reasons uh, patients with dementia tend to get pneumonia time and time and time again. Another good example of reflexes are people who are in comas or persistent vegetative states. 
they will, by definition, with uh, persistent vegetative states, have uh, sleep-wake cycles. So their eyes will open at times, and they will uh, sleep at times. And that signifies nothing uh, other than that the brainstem reflexes are, in fact, intact. And the brainstem is highly conserved across many species. Um, The brainstem is not what and uh, makes us who we are in this 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 audience. It is the higher level function, the cortex, et cetera. So um, the issue of reflexes, I, I find it perplexing as well. I guess I'm sorry, Mark. I'm having trouble being concise, as my wife would conte- uh, would, would attest would attest to not contest attest to um, that. Uh, uh, you know that this woman made her wishes known. This is. Ex- completely in keeping with what one would expect with this disease state. And if she can eat when offered food and she swallows without uh, undue distress, then, then that's fine. Uh, there seems to be nothing out of the, the order, uh, out, of, out of order uh, uh, or worrisome from my perspective. Okay. All right. Um, thanks. Did we have another thought on the living will? Okay. The thing that's always bothered me a lot about the living will is that whatever you write isn't worth much if there's a living relative nearby who has a different opinion. That's what carries the weight. That I don't know what we can do about that, but except in the, in the absolutely, uh, my experience, rare situation where you're doing what you can to save the person's life and the relative tells you, it's okay to let them die. And that really uh, is pretty disturbing. And, uh, of course, you're not going to allow that. But I don't know if there's a different solution to this problem of finding out what a person wants when they're dying. I, don't, so, I guess you would say if there were a okay. solution. So, thank you. I think what I'm hearing is there's a living will in place but there's not a health care power of attorney document in place. And yet, one of those high-ranking relatives, on, and the state lays out this hierarchy of decision-makers, um, is, is going against what the living will has expressed? Is that your scenario? Yeah, that doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, so, so what happens? Well, uh, <laughs> let me speak as a physician who uh, used to practice in the ICU for many years and then... Um, certainly invite the other panelists. As, as Lance uh, articulated, and I tried to articulate previously, the, the living will is there to protect the patient's right, uh, and in this case of informed refusal, the right to refuse any treatment, even if that refusal re- results in the patient's death. Probably the most common example we would be familiar with would be Jehovah's Witnesses refusing blood products in a time where they're bleeding and we could, quote-unquote, easily save them. Um, and the, the living will is uh, directed to, speaks to the physicians, not to the relative from West Texas who hadn't seen their mother in 20 years. Um, and I'm sort of joking, but I'm sort of not. Um, it happens not infrequently and causes tremendous distress, and I'd be interested, Dr. Stell. Well, it's almost, 
Yeah, it's grim humor to say that the person who arrives farthest away is the most impassioned to interfere and demand the most aggressive treatment um, and causes lots of distress, uh, for sure. And why that happens, well, we have psychological theories about why that happens, but yeah, it happens, sure does. You're saying the, the relative across the country? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Who's generally been least involved yes. in, the, in the care. Sometimes um, totally estranged. They've not had a conversation for many, many, many years. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, Reverend Flynn, you're also listening very intently. It was just it's a good chaplain does, but but speak. <laughs> well, I, I think it's important to remember that as we talk about these these things as legal documents, that the context in which these decisions get made, in a case of of uh, extreme or terminal illness, um, in a moment where someone is incapacitated. Is, is in a, a medical or, or healthcare environment and not in a court of law. And so although these documents do exist to, to try to steer uh, the, the conversation and, and express and protect the, uh, the, the patient's right to make choices and, and refusals, that uh, they, they, they only go so far. And I think as, as a comment was made uh, just a, a little bit ago, uh, their, their chief value that I have seen is that they, they help to empower the, the family members, the, the person who has been designated as the health care power of attorney, to go ahead and speak up. Uh, as uh, th- there may be many voices in the room, and all of them are trying to figure out what is the right thing, what is the best thing. But, but it, it helps to, to empower that conversation to to make some of the harder choices and say, you know, maybe the time has come to discontinue some of this aggressive treatment. You know, the, we know that the patient had expressed a desire not to have this sort of treatment. Uh, we know that the patient said that they had had conversations with this person and said that in the event they could not speak for themselves, this person would be able to answer the question, what would the patient want? All right, um, we've got about a half hour here, and I, I think there are a lot of questions. There's a hand right here, so if we could get uh, a microphone here, please. And um, you may direct your question to any of our panel. Uh, if you have a comment or a story that you think would shed light, I just ask that you do try to, to keep it concise so that we can hear from as many of you as possible. Go ahead. Okay, I thanks. read the... Living will on uh, before. Oh, sorry. We're, I'm sorry. I miscued you, but we'll go right here first. Thank you. I read the uh, living will on while I was waiting for the show to start, and I did find it very limiting. I was wondering if it would be um, legally relevant if I were to write in other situations which I wanted had specific care uh, wishes for. So how flexible is that, uh, sure. that document? Completely acceptable. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can do a videotape if you want and make the thing quite personal in that way. The difficulty with doing the custom job that you're talking about, and that is that if you stray very far from the document provided by North Carolina, the assurance to the doctor of no liability for complying with your wishes goes away or is not so clear. 
So if there's adherence to the document that is out there, you know, this form document that you don't like, uh, that's the comfort to the doctor to say, well, if I follow these instructions, I'm not going to get in trouble with the law. But if you do a custom job, uh, I think, you know, honesty, that, that doctors would do their darn well best to adhere to what you want. And they might even like it better if you made a videotape because you're looking at things and you are cueing conversation aspects that are much better than just looking at the words on a page. Okay. All right, does that help? Okay, um, and where'd we go here? Yes, ma'am. Thank you uh, so much for having this wonderful panel. This is very, very relevant to uh, me right now with my parents uh, being 84 and 86. I have a, a little bit of a technical question, and I, um, I recognize that none of you are attorneys, so hopefully it's not uh, too inappropriate for you. But we have gone to great lengths to get both the living wills and the health care power of attorneys uh, fully executed and notarized. However, they have not been filed with the uh, county deed of, of registers or county clerk or somebody like that. Is there, is there anyone who can speak um, on your panel to how viable these documents may be in the event that they are not fully registered with the county where my parents live? Okay. I've been told they're not actually actionable without that registration. So, Dr. Stell, who needs to have the documents? Well, the key is to have them available at the time that you want them consulted. Right. And so, ideally, they would be in, in the medical record, in that section of the, of the electronic medical record where these documents go. And when you just toggle right down, you can see legal documents, and the person has a health care power of attorney, you can read it. Uh, the registry that you're talking about is very imperfect because m- many people don't go to the lengths to see that the state-provided apparatus actually is used. And it, it can be cumbersome to try to access this, through the, this document through some other avenue. The, so, oh, I'm sorry. go ahead. I just, but the short answer is, is there is no need to register them anywhere. Um, uh, it, a copy to their physician would be extremely helpful if you are their power of attorney or most likely to be with them in the, uh, if, if and when the time comes that they get sicker. Uh, to have those to be able to speak on their behalf, but to register them, log them, whatever, not 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 necessary. Yeah. But you should make multiple copies. Yes. And and Thank you should you. make sure that your doctors have copies, that your loved ones have copies, that the person you designated as your health care power of attorney has a copy of the document and knows that they've been so named. So uh, to, to to make sure that those documents are known and then available when the time comes that they actually become needed. One, one thing we haven't talked about is the most form and the what's called the goldenrod. And these differ from advanced directives because they're medical orders. They're doctor's orders and not just the expression of patient wishes. The trick about those is it's the original that is valid and copies are not. So maintaining and preserving the original to go with the person across all the various sites of care where they might be, from, say, a long-term care facility to an ambulance ride to an emergency room to admission to the hospital to discharge. These documents are designed to close the loop so that they're valid in every setting. 
That's the ideal thing, ideal. But it doesn't, that also has problems because preserving the original is hard. Uh, and how you do that with an electronic medical record is something we haven't worked out because these are distinctively colored. The goldenrod is that color, goldenrod. And the most form is pulsar pink. And uh, so copies of those can be made, but it's the original is valid and has to be available on the spot to be consulted in order to do anything for medical care. And that's something that the physician writes, correct? It's an order. It's, it's an order. Now, there are problems with that, too, because the person who writes the order may not have privileges in the environment in which they're being read. So if he's not on the staff of the hospital... Uh, those orders are not good in the hospital. And the doctor who looks at them, if it's a doctor, could write separate orders on top of those, and that makes them valid. But you can see that all of the various devices that we have tried to provide to make things easier and smoother create problems of their own. And um, uh, I guess I'm the skunk at the garden party here. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's, let's go back here, please. I may, I don't know how many of you um, have, I've actually had to invoke power of attorney for both of my parents. And the reason we had the conversation to get there is my husband was diagnosed in 2004 with melanoma and died 16 weeks later with nothing. And that was sort of a shock, but he died a beautiful death because he was clear about what he wanted and with his, his oncologist. But my mother in 2009 went and became unconscious for 21 days and I had to stand in her shoes. And her living will said, no extreme measures. She kept going into, a, she kept wanting to code and go into um, cardiac arrest. But I knew that she'd be okay. And it's just because I know my mom, as we think we do. But I knew in her shoes that you said we have a conversation about fighting, but she's a warrior. So I said, no, we're not going to follow the DNR order. Treat her pneumonia, you know, do some other things. And she's lived on her own. Um, at the beach since then. She walked out of that hospital. So, and, and that's because I did follow. I knew what she actually wanted, but I think she mindlessly filled out that living will. And, and it was hard because my, my relatives were going, oh, extreme, you know, extreme measures. I'm like, no, this is the right thing. So as her power of attorney, which I did not file in any court, I have it for, and I've had to do the same thing for my father in a different situation, um, and then she was just diagnosed with uh, stage four lung cancer last week. And, um, but let me tell you, if you do have a health care power of attorney and you are one for someone you love, have multiple copies. It's not that difficult. You know, that, that notary will do them because I've had to carry them from hospital to hospital. And it is so important to have. So what you want to do, like right now with my mother, you know, we're looking at some really close end-of-life issues. I want to hear more about the most and the goldenrod because her, doc, her oncologists are here, but she's going to go back to the beach to die. So that's going to be a difficult situation for me. But um, you want it to be what they want, and sometimes that's really hard because you want to save them, but you can't always do that. So what you want to do is... Really, that conversation is so important. And you know what? This is even a springboard. Just, hey, I went to this, you know, I went to the public radio thing. (laughs) And I learned so much. But the frontline thing that was on night before last, anybody see that on PBS about dying? That was an amazing documentary. 
But anyway, so if you do need health care power of attorney, you are one. Make sure that, you, I mean, you do the right things. Every time you go to a hospital, have them put it in the digital record. If you need one for yourself, make sure your health care power of attorney understands all of these things. Because right. having that, I mean, I literally carry one in my suitcase every time I go to see one of my parents. So you want to have it, and you want to have one at every hospital where you are. Thank, so thank you. Thank you, ma'am, for sharing, sharing your uh, experience. Uh, just briefly, and I know we've got a, a lot more questions, it sounds like the system worked in, in that case um, in terms of the health care power of attorney sort of having the ultimate more of a say than the living will, at least from what I've heard said here this evening, that that's kind of the consensus that you would want that. Yes. So I think if one had to choose uh, a health care power attorney uh, would definitely be the would be the choice. And as has been pointed out uh, here and with the audience, um, you cannot uh, overrate um, uh, the, the power of the conversation. And, and it, we've used the term fight and death and dying and, and I, I would um, and fear and I would ask you all to flip that around and say the conversation is about living and it's about quality of living and quality of life. It is not about dying. And if you will flip that around, you'll be surprised how easy it is to move into these conversations. Okay. Thank you for your patience back in the back. Thank you. I have a quick comment and question. The comment is, since um, 2003, I've lost a mother, a brother, father, mother-in-law. And before that, I lost my sister. So that's a lot of loss. And I'm working on a on a book about that, but um, everybody now in my family and friends, the thing that I tell everybody is have the conversation and live a happy life. That's my theme. Have the conversation and live a happy life. You can talk about it, have the conversation, and file it away. And it's a beautiful gift that you give your family and your friends when you have the conversation. And I think you just alluded to my second to the question that I wanted to ask is. All of you on the panel, either professionally or personally, what documents do you think everybody in this room need to make sure they have? Now, a will is something you haven't talked about, but um, just in general, if there's one, two, three, if it were you, which ones would you most definitely have? I know one of you just said the health care power of attorney, so would that be it, or would all of you have a different opinion about that? Thank you. All right. Well... Take it away. If, um, if I could mention uh, another resource along with uh, some of the resources that were mentioned earlier, um, there's uh, on the NovantHealth.org website, there is a program called Choices and Champions that really presents this, this whole topic in, in a very helpful way, including not just what the documents are all about, and, and, and you can download copies of the documents, but also how you can have discussions about these things. And uh, one of the, uh, the points that is made, uh, and we can put that, that link uh, on the website, uh, as, as you said, um, one of the, the points that's, that's made there is that not all of these documents necessarily need to be addressed at the same time. 
for example, uh, things like the DNR and the most form really don't come up until someone is in a very advanced stage of illness and, and facing uh, the, the final uh, days and decisions uh, about life. Uh, but things like the, uh, the living will and the health care power of attorney are things that can be discussed uh, well before that. And uh, it even makes the, 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 uh, the point that really the, the living will might not really be a relevant thing or a necessary thing or helpful thing to discuss until someone is getting up in years or, or developing certain kinds of health conditions that raise certain kinds of scenarios. And, and, but that the healthcare power of attorney is a discussion that ought to be had very early and, and maybe the, the primary document that uh, the people need to have and every healthy adult should have a health care power of attorney document that they and their loved ones and doctors have uh, because you don't know when you might become an unhealthy adult. Uh, so, but, but every healthy adult could begin by making a health care power of attorney. And, uh, and as life goes on and as uh, illnesses come about and, and arise, then some of these other documents uh, in their time might also be helpful. Okay. So I think there's an answer to your question there from Reverend Flynn. Um, quickly down the line. Uh, health care power of attorney. Consensus there. Conversation and health care power of attorney. <laughs> okay. I have a living will and a health care power of attorney. And you say, why? And my lawyer made me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Um, uh, there are more hands. Who's got a, a hand and a microphone? All right, we'll go right here. Um, <clears throat> I was struck when uh, we talked about conversation and the fear of having conversation, which probably has to do with the fear of loss of oneself. And not too long ago um, on the Internet, I uh, discovered that there was an underground group called the Order of Death, and uh, not that I believe in their rituals, but the concept they had was very empowering, and that is to embrace death. And by embracing death, you're accepting your uh, mortality. And once you're able to do that, you're able to go on with living. And I was wondering if you can comment on that. Dr. Tullis, that sounds like one that's right up your, right up your alley. Yeah. Um, I think it's called the Order of a Good Death. Does that sound? Is that, yeah, the Order of a Good Death. Yes, they actually have T-shirts now. Um, yes, you should get one. Um, <laughs> yes, no, I, I mean, I tell people, I think, I think um, the doctor said this earlier, too. I mean, I think really the, the, any conversation about dying and death is really about living. I mean, that's absolutely the case. And I think if you can, if you think about what type of life you want to have, um, that, that's going to influence, you know, very likely the types of choices that you're going to want to make around your dying and death. So for me, it is about um, embracing how I want to live and, and doing things like being a hospice volunteer. Um, even when I'm doing observations for research purposes in clinical settings, I still find that's very life-affirming for me, more than it is sad or depressing um, of course, am I sad when somebody I care about dies? Yes, absolutely. But I also, it also inspires me to want to live more fully, um, to, do, to have adventures, to 
um, be kinder to people, right? I mean, all those things, I think, are really a big part of, of the conversation as well. And I learn so much about my friends when they tell me things like, I don't want to have pain, um, you know, and if I have a, a serious illness, you know, I'm gonna, I want to have beer and chocolate. I mean, you know, I learn, I learn so much more uh, in some ways having those conversations. The, I learn about the important things to um, those individuals when we have the, the, the good death conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And, and Reverend Flynn, this, you must have a lot of conversations with people along these lines as well. Uh, how do they go? How do you, how do you probe that with, with an individual? Well, I, I think um, people sometimes raise them in oblique ways. Um, they, uh, they don't necessarily ask direct questions, but in the course of conversations about the life that people are, are living and want to live and uh, what's important to them and how they, they envision uh, their, their final days, then some of these questions come up uh, about uh, whether it's all right for them to refuse certain kinds of treatments and uh, whether, whether it's going to be um, hurtful or, or uh, somehow uh, disturbing to their loved ones to, uh, to make certain kinds of statements or, or express certain kinds of wishes. And I, I think uh, you just feel your way forward uh, and uh, try to reassure people that, that it's all right for them to, uh, to not only make their thoughts and wishes known, but to have these conversations with their loved ones, uh, whether it's about their own demise or, or about their, their loved one's condition. And in that scenario uh, where uh, a person is critically ill, maybe they're in the intensive care unit and there is decisions to be made about uh, disconnecting machines and so forth, and relatives are feeling that feeling of guilt uh, that by uh, disconnecting the machine, maybe even if uh, the ill person had expressed a desire not to be hooked up, to machines, as, as people say, um, they feel that they are, in fact, taking a life, in, in effect. Um, from your perspective, how do, you, how do you talk with that person? How do you talk them through that dilemma? Well, sometimes people's religious beliefs and practices uh, come into play. Uh, always, it's, um, it's about the love that this person uh, has for, for this person who's, who's unable to speak for themselves, perhaps, at that moment. The, um, in my experience, the, the person who's finally the decision-maker who's going to be consulted, uh, often a spouse or uh, uh, adult children or an adult child, uh, uh, these people... Uh, are really in, in a, a relatively calm place of, of trying to reassure themselves that the good decisions that they feel that they should make are all right. Um, they're, they're the ones who are being turned to finally to speak, to make a, a decision or, or express a, a preference on behalf of this patient and 
if anything, they already know what, what really ought to be done, what the patient would want, what, what is the, the human and loving thing to do. Um, and they're just looking for some reassurance from, from those around them that, yeah, yes, um, these are good choices. I'd just like to say a, a bit about too much focus on the interventions. That is too much talk about the vent or the feeding tube or resuscitation. And I think that it's natural for that to happen because those are things going to be ordered or not. But it should be the goals of care that should drive this story and not too much talk about, well, so my grandpa never wanted to be on a ventilator or grandpa never wanted a feeding tube. Well, the question is, what would that intervention do for him? Would it get him over an acute illness so that he could resume the life he had before, yes or no? And if it could, then say, oh, well, if that was possible, then he might want it. And so a trial of therapy seems to me is eminently reasonable given the uncertainties that there are. I mean, there's fraught with uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. We know what to expect, and doctors are experts at, at telling us what to expect, but they're not perfect. And a trial of therapy is eminently reasonable, but in light of the goal, it should be achieving. And the doctor can say, well, if this is going to get him through this test spot, we ought to be able to see that in about a week. And if we can't do this in a week, then I think you know, we would, would be really talking about chronic dependency. And then, oh, I wouldn't, wouldn't want that. So sometimes there can be a too quick refusal of, oh, never event, or oh, never this, or that, when it should really be about the goals. What, would it, what goal would that, that achieve? We've got just a few minutes left here. I'd like to give a, a few more a chance to just make a brief comment or a quick question that we can address pretty succinctly. Uh, Michael? Thank you. We've talked a bit about trying to express your desires around quality of life and those goals of care. And I think it's been pretty clear that you want to have that conversation. But is there nothing that you can do if you have the misfortune of having the person that you've designated, the person who's had that conversation, is also not able to speak? Is there nothing that you could have in writing or do that a doctor would be comfortable following? So there, that's a uh, great question. Um, when you fill out a healthcare power attorney form, you actually generally designate several people for just that circumstance. So if you designated a spouse and you were both in a tragic accident, uh, then your sister or brother or neighbor or pastor <laughs> or rabbi or something. So that's generally the way that that's dealt with. Okay. Good. Good. All right. Question. Good. Um, okay. Well, Michael, if, let's get right here on the end. Hi, I did have a question going back to um, Lance and what you said, and that is how well you think the providers in our community are able to speak in those situations. Just as you pointed out, um, this is a situation that we have. This is the first step we're going to take. Maybe we do this trial, and after that, we need to. Con- consider other options. I've been in the healthcare, it's been my career, and I've not seen that happen. And it's, it's very disturbing. So what you're saying is that the goals of care are not addressed? I think that they're, I often think that a physician's goal 
and a family's goal may not be aligned very, mm-hmm. very closely in reality when you get into a, a situation yeah. that you're discussing. And I think it's complicated by discontinuities in care because hospitalized patients have very rapid turnover in medical supervision, sometimes every three days. So trying to make sure that the one who's going off communicates all the discussions they've been having with the previous one is very, very difficult. In fact, I think it's... Do you think that there's something that organizations need to do as a whole to address that? I mean, whose responsibility let, let me, let me is it, I guess? T- let me tell you, I think you've hit the nail on the head, and, and as, as a physician, I would say that I'm embarrassed uh, by how physicians in general, how we have abdicated our responsibility to um, practice patient-centered care, which means knowing the patient, uh, understanding their goals of care, uh, what needs to be done, and I think Novon has taken a major step forward with this website that Michael mentioned earlier, is I think the healthcare systems need to take a leadership role by normalizing um, whether we want to call it end of life discussions or really I would say just life preparation discussions or living preparation discussions, um, uh, normalize it. Uh, and destigmatize it, and and then basically uh, spread it, and uh, that's where the providers are, the the healthcare professionals, and I really feel like it's our responsibility to find a way to do that. It, it, we could take a whole ninety minutes to have a, a very vigorous discussion about this question, and and I think it's really uh, there are many. It is it is multifactorial uh, to say the least. All right. Well, thank you. Um, let's take one more question. Uh, Alexia. <clears throat> thank you. Forgive me if I didn't hear this, but did you address the most part on that agenda? Because mm-hmm. I, I was not familiar well, with Well, I think time. it was briefly addressed, as, uh, but Dr. Stell, give us the uh, cliff notes. Okay. Um, <laughs> the most form is designed to deal with the limitations of the portable DNR. The DNR form, remember, was invented portable to go across care settings because if there was no portability, they would, they would lapse at every discharge. Um, so the most form addresses more interventions, such as antibiotics, feeding tubes as well. And those are the most common ones that are stressful uh, to raise. Maybe the feeding tube is the most uh, emotionally difficult of all of the interventions that I know of. The people really, really are stressed about that. And Dr. Barkley has made this a special study of his for many, many years. So, um, yeah, the most form is, is, what is it designed for? For people with a limited life expectancy, if you, when we educate people on this, we say, would you be surprised if your patient died in the next year? And if the answer is no, I would not be surprised, then that person is a candidate for a most form. And then the conversations about goals of care, the kinds of interventions they would or wouldn't want, under what circumstances, uh, then go with that person, ideally with the pulsar pink form, uh, across care settings. And uh, they can hold at bay EMTs if they happen to be called to the house, as the mo- and the goldenrod does that too. Because when things get existentially intense, 
people may think, well, I'm not going to call EMT, but then somebody does. And when the EMT arrives, boys, like the Marines have landed, and they're going to do their thing, and it doesn't make any difference what they hear, but they will stop for a goldenrod or a most form that's original. Their work rules say, okay. Otherwise, they're going to do a resuscitation and get that person to the hospital. So most medical order for scope of treatment. Scope of treatment. I did my homework. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Um, thank you. Uh, I know that uh, there's a lot more that we could uh, address. Thank you for your input, your questions, and your comments. I hope that uh, we will be able to continue the conversation uh, through our website and um, that we can perhaps gather again uh, to do part two of this discussion. So I want to thank uh, Reverend Flynn, Dr. Barkley, Dr. Tullis, and Dr. Stell for your time tonight and each of you for coming out. Uh, Let me just remind you uh, or tell you that uh, we will be emailing a survey on our event tonight. So if we have your email address... You'll get that survey uh, within the next day or so. We'd love to have your feedback on uh, this event and also your ideas for future public conversations. The audio from our uh, conversation tonight uh, will be on our website along with those resource links at WFAE.org. And, of course, stay tuned and uh, watch and listen for future public conversation topics. So thanks again and uh, drive safely. Have a good night.